up on today's show, we'll get an update from Alberta's Minister of Advanced Education, Dimitrios Nicolaitis, on the situation with Athabasca University. We'll also speak with Aaron Woodrick. We're talking about the Emergencies Act inquiry, now into its final week, and trying to stretch every dollar as far as you can. We'll get some tips on how you can save a little money when you go to the grocery store. Said, no, that's not nearly enough. We want to see that up to 65% by 2025, within a few years. Um, but it sounds like that target may have changed as of late last week, but we'll find out for sure now. We'll check in with uh, Advanced Education Minister Dimitrios Nicolaitis. Uh, Minister, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, as always, appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that target last time we talked, it's been altered a little bit. Is there a new target in place now? Well, the targets have always been uh, open and flexible. Uh, you know, I'm not looking for a very definitive, hard number to say that you know there must be X number of employees, and 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 that's the final target. And uh, you know, we won't consider anything below that or any kind of deviations from that. That was what we were um, suggesting as uh, something that the university should look at. But as I've always said throughout the course of this, I'm very open and very flexible. If the targets are too aggressive or um, too ambitious that I'm always very open to look at alternatives. So uh, I know that you're looking to have some sort of deal in place by the end of the month. What are the, I mean, we're now talking about dialing it back to certain percentage increases year by year rather than let's get to 65 by 2025. What are the targets that you've given to the school? Sure. So just for a little bit of context, so every post-secondary institution in Alberta must sign what's called an investment management agreement with the government, which stipulates how much funding they're going to receive and what government would like to see them do as a consequence of that funding. So what we're asking the university to do in this agreement very specifically is to grow the number of local employees in the community by 5% year over year for the next three years and to have 44% of their executive team working and living in Athabasca by the end of that agreement, which is in three years' time. Uh, so those are, those are the hard numbers of, of what we're, we're asking the university to commit to in the investment management agreement. The university is the only institution in Alberta that doesn't have a signed investment management agreement with government yet, so that's, I'm, I'm quite concerned that we don't have that in place yet. I think the targets that we have here are very realistic and very achievable. But again, if for whatever reason the board wants to make some adjustments, I'm very open to hearing their thoughts and perspectives. And that's what you were saying earlier. I mean, it's it, rather than saying you've softened your sense, you, you, from the beginning, you, you claim that you've always been willing to be, you know, flexible on this target, right? Well, 100%. Ashay, back in March, uh, at, the, at the very kind of start of this, the direction that I provided to the university was um, a, a, a goal. Uh, what I articulate to the university is we'd like to see your executive and your administrative operations be based in the town of Athabasca. That was that was the, the objective we gave them. I didn't attach any uh, deadlines, timelines, or specific numbers, and I asked the university to give me a plan. How are we going to get there? What would that entail? Uh, how much time would that take? But And we asked for that to be uh, delivered to us by June 30th. However, we didn't receive that. Right. And so... 
we're putting some more details down in the investment management agreement. But I've always tried to give a blank page to the university to say, I just want to give you the goal and you build me the plan to get us there. Um, what's the deadline? I mean, we, we've had talks before where funding would be pulled, all sorts of things. Where are we at in terms of I want this plan and I want it by this date or funding is up? I mean, what is there a deadline? Is there an ultimatum here or is where? how do we get some resolution on this? Yeah, I've asked, I've sent a note to the board chair and I've asked for the board chair to convene a special meeting of the Board of Governors uh, by the end of the month to debate and vote on the um, investment management agreement. As I've mentioned, um, the university is the only post-secondary institution in Alberta without an investment management agreement in place. Uh, it's not, and that's not something I just want to see. That's that requirement is enshrined in legislation, um, and and in other uh, agreements that exist with the government. So we have to get an investment management agreement signed. There's no two ways about mm-hmm. it. So I've asked them to get that done by the end of the month, and I've uh, told them I'll I'll clear my schedule. I'll come up to Athabasca. I'll dial in virtually whatever's needed. I, I'll make myself available so we can have an open and frank conversation, get these details sorted out so that we can move on to other matters as well. Um, in an interview with CBC that I was reading this week, and I'm sure you've seen it, the school president says they're they're working on a plan where they can create more employees from Athabasca in Athabasca, but they would create a new, well, like a research center at the Athabasca University, which would be focused on issues in that area and hire a bunch of people to live there and, and research that. Would, would that work? Does it matter what role these employees are taking or does it have to be, hey, what we've got now, we want faculty and we want maintenance and the people that are there running the school as it is today need to be up to whatever target we decide on? Well, I think uh, the the non-instructional kind of core operation of the university should be should be based in the town. I don't think we need to have every single instructor, professor, lecturer uh, based in in the town. But I think we there can certainly be a commitment to have that kind of core non-instructional uh, operational and executive team be based there. And indeed, yeah, we have been talking with the university about the idea of of um, creating a research hub. I'm happy to look at that in more detail once we've got the IMA signed, once we've got these details committed to. And again, I'm not too concerned with the, um, you know, the implementation about how we're going to get there. I really want to defer to the university and their Mm -hmm. expertise to give us that roadmap. Um, I think from a government standpoint, at a 50,000-foot level, there needs to be a clear commitment. All right, we're going to work towards growing the number of local employees by this much over the next few years. Here are the targets we're going to work towards. Here are the numbers we're going to strive towards. And um, and let the university develop the best roadmap to get us there. And as you say, you're willing to head up there. We've got the board meeting coming up at the end of the month. You're willing to be an active player in that. And that's that's the next step in this process, right? Yeah, 100%. Again, I've, I've asked the university, uh, specifically the Board of Governors, to convene a special meeting by the end of the month. Um, let's have an open, honest, uh, frank conversation about uh, next steps, uh, the, the investment management agreement, uh, the targets that we've established in there, and, and let's move forward. And just on that point, you know, all, all investment management agreements are structured in this way. Every university and college 
has an investment management agreement with targets, primarily around uh, enrollment levels, primarily around the number of students that are participating in work-integrated learning opportunities. And so for Athabasca, there's a couple of additional targets in there around their local presence. So this is a standard practice that that happens with all institutions. Every other university and college has um, an investment management agreement signed with government. And again, I think what we're asking for the university here is very, very, very reasonable, a 5% increase to their local employment numbers year over year for the next three years, and to have 44% of their executive team, which is nine members, have 44% of them uh, working and living in the town by 24-25. So I think those are very, very reasonable. Uh, I'm not. I don't see why that would. What the barriers or obstacles would be for the university to achieve those um, those goals. But let's get this sorted out. Um, I'm as I said. I'm going to make myself available and clear my schedule as is needed, so that we can get this sorted and um, we can work on helping the university grow, reach more learners, expand their presence online to more learners in our province and and in Canada. Um, and contribute to giving Albertans access to high-quality education. Well, Minister, as always, I appreciate you coming on and uh, giving us the government side of this situation. Thank you so much, sir. Of course. Always my pleasure. Take care. That's Advanced Education Minister Dimitrios Nicolaides uh, bringing us an update on the government's position on the Athabasca University... I don't know what you want to call it. Squabble? So we're into the final week now of the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings into Ottawa's use of the Emergencies Act. So far, we've had uh, more than 60 witnesses testify, uh, ranging from everything from Ottawa residents to former chiefs of police to convoy organizers, now federal ministers. And you know what? To be honest, I thought this would be more of a circus than it's turned into. I'm surprised that, um, you know, I mean, there's been moments, and there were some today, Um, But all in all, it's been a rather tame event. Now, emotions are running high in this final week. A lot of attention. The Prime Minister testifies Friday. Uh, And they got into it this morning. The lawyer representing the Freedom Convoy protesters was tossed from the hearing over interrupting Justice Paul Rouleau. Um, Lawyer Brendan Miller repeatedly pushing for a member of Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino's staff to testify this morning and ignoring uh, the justice's instructions. Commission counsel has not completed her I understand, but sir, and your counsel's advised you that... Um, no, I, I know you've directed, sorry, you wanted the I'm application. I'm sorry, I'm speaking. Yes, sir. So they were speaking over each other. Ultimately, uh, Rolo ordered Miller to be uh, removed from the room. The lawyer did comply. So, I mean... That's about as tense as it's gotten over the past few weeks. There's been, you know, there's been some interesting moments. But let's speak now with uh, Aaron Woodrick, who is the director of the McDonald Laurie Institute's domestic policy program, and who's been watching this the proceedings very, very closely. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Shane. So you know, this it started well weeks ago now, and, and like I say, more than sixty different witnesses have testified, and. What what the focus of all of this ultimately what it comes down to is we're supposed to find out at the end of all this whether or not the government acted appropriately by invoking this act right that's what this is all about. Yeah, you know, you, you, you've you summed it up well, too, and this has been a sort of month that's been sort of a manna for legal nerds like myself. Um, but really, the whole purpose of this inquiry, the only reason we're having it is because the Emergencies Act was invoked. This is a very unique law. It's arguably the most sort of um, draconian law in the books, right? It's designed 
to only be used in the most rarest circumstances. And because of that, it requires this type of inquiry so that we can sort of hear from all the parties, so we can hear what the rationale for it was. So that's the point here. And the, the real, you know, simple purpose of this inquiry is, is to answer a simple question is, did the government meet the legal test, which is included in the act itself, um, in order to use this test? The possibility is yes, they did, or no, they didn't. Um, people often ask me, well, what does it mean if there's a finding one way or the other? Not very much, um, but it will at least tell the public whether or not the government, in Mr. Justice Rouleau's uh, right. opinion, met the you know acted within the law or not. And ultimately, I mean, that's the thing, right? Whether or not we get that question answered, it will come down to the justice who's presiding over this. It's his say and his say alone. And I mean, are there consequences? What what kind of verdict are we are, are we heading towards? I guess is the question. Yeah, I mean, if you had to go based on, um, and different people are going to have different views on this, I find it's very hard for people to separate their sort of view of the convoy yes. with the legal test. I find that if people are sympathetic to the convoy, they sort of say, well, of course they didn't meet the test. And if people don't like the convoy, they say, well, of course the test was met. Mm-hmm. And I think based on the evidence up until this week, it was not looking very good for the government. You had, um, you know, various police forces. You had Commissioner Brenda Lucky from the RCMP. You had the CSIS director all saying that the test in the law was not met. Um, now you have, you know, at the end of last week, we heard the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor and now head of CISA say, well, you know what, the test is actually something else. It's not what it says in what's known as uh, Section 2 of the CSIS Act. So now there's this debate over what the test actually is. Um, I think, uh, Shay, the government still needs to explain why they're using a different test than the one that's actually in the Act. Um, but obviously we have ministers coming forward this week and hopefully they'll, they'll shed some more light on that. Has there been any standout moments like did you say, oh, wait a minute, this was really enlightening, This we really learned a lot from here, or this was really dramatic? Has there been anything that sort of, over the past several weeks, that sort of broke through? Yeah, the biggest thing was definitely last week when the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas, um, and basically argued that, um, yes, uh, you know, they didn't meet the test in the law, but... Um, her view was that the test should be broader than what's in the law. And that's a very interesting statement, right? Like uh, most lawyers will tell you, the laws have meaning, they have words included, um, they have definition sections, definitions explain what things mean. Um, sometimes those definitions are vague, right? Other times those definitions have a specific language included in them saying, and in this case, we were talking about threats to the security of Canada. That is a specific meaning in the Act, uh, Shay. It, it's defined in there, it says it's, it's assigned the meaning that Section 2 of the ceases access. So it doesn't say Section 2 and other stuff right. or and other circumstances. It's very clear. So that was the real eyebrow raiser to me was that the National Security Advisor is saying, you know what, we're actually going to use a different test than the one that the law says. Um, now, this week, uh, and we're hearing all kinds of reaction already, we've got all the federal ministers, I think seven federal ministers. I mean, is this sort of where mm-hmm. it, the whole thing is, it's a make or break moment for this entire inquiry? Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, the government has to explain, um, you know, now that the groundwork's sort of been laid, like, what what evidence do they have that this was uh, more serious than, than some people? Again, going back to you, it's really hard, I find, that uh, people's views on this seem to be very heavily covered by whether they like the oh, for support sure. or oppose the convoy. Totally. Um, so it's really, really hard to find people who are objective about this. But I, I think the point I make to people is it's entirely possible um, to 
dislike the convoy, but recognize that the test in this law wasn't met. I think a lot of people have to contemplate that fact. And, and to me, this is not really about the convoy or this government. It's, it's about the rule of law. It's about whether or not um, governments are bound by the law themselves. And I think uh, we unfortunately are in a time now where um, people tend to want the law applied harshly to people they don't like and very lightly to people they do like. And that applies to all sides of the political spectrum. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. We need to apply the law consistently all the time to our friends and our enemies. Um, and if we get into this habit of saying, you know what, we're going we're gonna to look the other way when it's people we like and we're going to bring down the hammer when it's people we don't, I think that's a very dangerous place for us to go as a society. I think you're so right. And I think that was sort of built in before this thing even started. And I, I wonder in terms of, I was anticipating some moments of absolute gong showness, like just craziness as this proceedings went on. I don't think that's really happened. I, I haven't talked to anybody who's been watching this very closely because I think just as you say the fact that we already, you know, we we view this through such a political lens, the outcome is predetermined for a lot of people. There, I don't know how closely Canadians are following this. Yeah, it's also very long, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. This is who has time to sit for, and it's twelve-hour days. They've, they've packed a lot in here. That's partly because the act requires that Rouleau has to report within one year of the day it being invoked, which is coming up in February. So they're in a real rush here. That's probably not doing this uh, process any justice. Um, but look, I, I don't know that no matter what Justice Rouleau finds, it's going to change a lot of minds, right? Like there right. are going to be some people who say, you know what, I don't care what the judge says. Um, you know, I, I'm happy that they brought the hammer down and cleared them out. Or others are going to say, you know what, it doesn't matter. I don't think it was justified. So I, I worry a bit about that. I, I hope a lot of people can step back and realize there's a lot more at stake here than this one incident. Um, if, if I always say to people, if you're happy to look the other way when people you like are using an extreme power, imagine someday someone you don't like holding that power. Are you going to yeah. be comfortable with them waving it around based on the last precedent? Um, the Prime Minister on Friday, of course, that is going to be, uh, if there's a headliner uh, and uh, we're building to something, that's it, right? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, something interesting that came up today that I think is going to be further explored is that the minister, Mendicino, uh, public safety minister, now, um, he said today that uh, talking with the protesters was never off the table. And I think that's something that's new. I think that uh, ministers and the prime minister had implied back in February that, you know, they weren't, gonna, they weren't going to um, meet with these protesters. So I think that's something the prime minister needs to be asked is that, you know, did they sort of go into this sort of starting off the bat saying we're never going to even talk to these people? Or, or was that a lie? they use, did that shift over time? I think that's an important question because I think that's something that for a lot of people is if this could have been resolved by just talking, um, was that was that something that should have been on the table? Um, and finally, uh, Aaron, in terms of what happens once the testimony wraps up, what's the timeline? And if we just get a simple yes, no from uh, the justice, I mean, how does this play out? What's the next step in this process? Like you say, it's all it's all written down, right? Yeah, um, he's going to have to report by the anniversary of the use of the act. So mid-February, he has to put out a final report. He's going to make a finding one way or another. I think he's going to have to say whether he thinks the test was met or not. How, um, you know, how long his reasoning is on that is 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 anybody's guess. But I think he he recognizes it, it, it would be a real cop-out to say, well, you know what? I don't, I don't know. The whole purpose of this inquiry is to reach a conclusion, and I think the justice is going to reach one either way. All right. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for your insight. I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Shane. That is Aaron Woodrick, director of the McDonald laurier Institute's Domestic Policy Program. And he's right. And, you know, I mean, ultimately, depending on how you feel about the convoy, and in a lot of ways, how you feel about Justin Trudeau, um, the, the outcome of this is predetermined, right? I mean, we just we just talked about it with mask mandates. It's very similar um, in, in terms of this.
personally, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I never did support the Emergencies Act being brought in. I thought if the Ottawa police had done their job the way Windsor police had done their job, none of this would have happened. Uh, I think it was just a failure in policing, but um, we'll see. Uh, the testimony continues leading up to the Prime Minister on Friday, which I think will be a very closely watched moment. All right. How much time have we spent recently talking about the cost of living? Why? Because it affects all of us. It's a, it, Like I said, the Premier is doing her televised address tonight. I expect the predominant takeaway for everybody watching will be, hey, what are you going to do to help me with soaring energy prices, with soaring grocery bills, with whatever the case may be? Everything is more expensive. Uh, it affects everybody and governments are being asked to respond. So we've talked a lot about it and we'll talk about it tomorrow too. Now, We've talked a lot about the cost of food, right? I mean, even down to the price of a head of lettuce. Uh, it's continued to rise even as we have seen inflation slow in some other areas. Um, I've really noticed it the last couple of times I've been in the grocery store. Just do this as an experiment. Next time you're in the grocery store, just pay attention to the people around you. You know how sometimes we can just sort of have our blinders on and we're not really tuned into the people around us, but it's happened to me, I'm going to say four or five times in my last couple of trips to the grocery store where I've heard, um, I've heard people say some, well, some things I can't repeat on the radio when they take a look at the price of meat or the price of produce or one guy I saw on the weekend was walking away from the checkout holding the receipt in his hand saying some pretty spicy things to his wife wasn't mad at her but it was just like what happened it's a bit of a smack I think when you get that receipt when you when the total comes due after you run everything through the checkout, it's like what it wasn't that much just last week so I mean we know there's no doubt prices are way up and a lot of people are starting to look for ways to try and cushion that blow as best they can um, one thing that we know has seen an increase in is couponing. Now, full disclosure, I've never clipped a coupon in my life. I wouldn't know where to start. My wife got into it big time for a while and did very well, sort of abandoned it since. Um, but she's a shopper. She likes that sort of thing. Our next guest is an expert in this, in how to try and stretch the dollar. We're going to chat with Kathleen Cassidy, who is the founder of Living on a Looney social media blog. Kathleen, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. Hello, how are you? I'm great, great. Thanks so much. Talking about couponing, uh, you, you're you're an expert. On, you've been doing this for quite a while. You're not new to this game, right? No, I have been couponing for probably about 10 years now, but, you know, quote-unquote extreme couponing for definitely the last five and really trying to make a difference and teach Canadians how to do the same. So when you mention extreme couponing, I think I know what you're talking about because there's TV shows and everything. This is sort of like really, really, really getting into it. It's not like just going through the flyer, right? I mean, it's it's almost like a job. Uh, it, it really depends. I will always say couponing is really how much time and effort you put into it. But I know people kind of have maybe a stigma that's attached to it from the show Extreme Couponing. I will promise it is not as extreme as that show makes it out to be. Um, <laughs> but definitely a lot of good ways that you can save money. How much money? Like how much of a difference to your bottom line can you make if you get into couponing? Uh, it really depends, again, on your family size and how much time and effort you're putting into it. But I'm able to save thousands of dollars a year, and that's on everyday products such as food items, toiletry, personal hygiene products, cleaning products, etc. Now, I imagine the skills that you've developed over the years of doing this are very much in demand right now. And, you, and like I say, you started a social media blog. You're sort of, you've now become an, an expert that uh, is trying to help others, right? 
A hundred percent. Yeah, I started my blog uh, probably five-ish years ago, maybe now, just really trying to show that, hey, you can coupon in Canada because we never really talked about that. It's always very U.S.-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely with COVID and now with this inflation, uh, it's definitely become popular and just a way for me to teach other people how you can go in and save money yourself. So if we've got somebody out there listening right now thinking, you know what, I'm really having a hard time making ends meet, especially at the grocery store or whatever the case may be, and they want to get started on this, What do you advise them? How do you sort of uh, get into this? Yeah, I really think that when you you start and you think of couponing, you just think of clipping paper coupons, kind of like we already chatted. But there's a lot to couponing and lots of different ways that you can save money that I like to teach about. And really, you can start just as easy as doing a small meal plan and really focusing on your grocery list. So when you're going to the grocery store just before you go, just kind of writing down, you know, what are the core things that we're having this week for our big meals? Maybe that's dinner. And what do I need to buy? Looking in your pantry what do I already have and kind of making a small list of the ingredients the protein fruits vegetables snack etc that you'll need and really sticking to that list because a lot of the problems that Canadians and anyone has really is when they go to the grocery store they don't really have a plan for the week and they just throw things in their their cart Mm -hmm. and then obviously that drives up the price of your bill but that also leaves things in your fridge that goes to waste and you're basically just throwing that money out. Yeah, so you're not even talking about couponing yet. You're just saying don't buy things you don't need to buy. A hundred percent. I would always say like couponing is a very large kind of realm. Yeah. That's really just a first start that you can take. And then as we start to, you get more comfortable with that, you can build on it. So what does that look like? Looking at flyers, what's the best price for things this week? What store are you shopping at? Because we all know that different grocery stores will definitely have different prices and quality. And then you can start into, you know, am I using a loyalty points program? Am I using coupons? Am I finding those in stores? And really just kind of build on those basic necessities of that always comes back to you know what am i eating this week do you have to sort of shop around i guess i mean like i'm pretty much a one-store guy and always have been is that a mistake do i need to sort of shop around and find out who's got the best deals i don't think you need to shop around but it's always good to be mindful you know if you're looking at saving money and you're going to, you know, some place that's a little bit more high end in your area, does that make sense for you financially? Or do you appreciate that extra higher quality and product? It really comes down to your personal preference, but that's always kind of one thing that you consider. And if you do like, you know, the more high end store with the better quality produce and meat, where can you save from there. So is that looking at, okay, I have my list. Is there a coupon for anything? Can I use loyalty points? Is there cash back? You know, what areas can you save at the store that you like to shop at? You know, like you say, finding out these sorts of things, How? where do you start? I mean, is it flyers? Is it online? Is it a combination? Where do you do that research that you're talking about? Yeah, you can definitely do it flyers, in-store, online. There's a lot of different ways and not trying to make it overwhelming on my page. I really try to make it as simple as possible. But for example, when you're looking through the flyer, you're looking for those deals. Do you see a certain promo or, you know, a loyalty points offer, say for maybe PC Optimum or Scene Plus points? Um, is that something you purchase? So just kind of being mindful and taking a little bit of time to stop and think again, what am I buying this week and how can I save the most on it can really help you in the long run. Um, And like you say, it all comes down to how much time and effort you want to put in. Just like anything else, you'll get the biggest rewards if you spend the most time before you even get to the store, right? Correct, yeah. 
what about, is there an expert tip? Like, I mean, I, I'm sure we can all sort of go through the flyers and we can all shop around, but is there something that you always do that really delivers bang for your buck? I will say in full transparency and how I became so, so good at saving money is honestly from social media and just interacting and following others who have similar pages to mine. And really you can learn from other people. So there's a lot of creators such as myself and others who make videos who specifically show you here's what store you can go, go to, this is how you can save, this is how you use this loyalty points program, this coupon, whatever it will be. And at the end of the day, I think that's the easiest way for someone to kind of pick up on these habits and then you can apply them to your own shopping experience. Excellent. Excellent advice, Kathleen. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. That's Kathleen Cassidy, who is the founder of Living on a Looney social media blog. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.